Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin Willman. The awkward part is because I was a teenager and this was a, also an adult bookstore, you had to have a parent or guardian with you. So I had to take my mom with me every week and she'd sit off in the corner like in the dildo section while I'm learning magic. That and more. But first, don't forget that the other side of our business that we run here at Risk is our school. The Story Studio at thestorystudio.org. We do corporate workshops, workshops that are customized for any sort of team. We've taught workshops for big companies like uh, Google, Pfizer, Citibank, American Express, and for much smaller teams, nonprofits, university classrooms. We once taught a workshop for a family that wanted to document their own family stories. We taught one once at a community center for at-risk youth. We've traveled overseas to do workshops, and we've done them remotely by Zoom. Again and again and again, people tell us, oh, we've hired folks to teach workshops on communication skills before, but nothing as practical and effective and powerful as yours. So get on it. We are at thestorystudio.org. Folks, one of my all-time favorite risk stories is the one called Outside the Comfort Zone by Chris Ryan. It's when he's in the Mayan ruins, he's on acid, he gets bitten by a scorpion. Well, Chris has his own podcast called Tangentially Speaking, and I was on a recent episode of it. Chris has never stopped adventuring. In fact, he just told me he's roaming the plains of the Serengeti as I'm recording this. And Chris knows so many fascinating people that he talks to on Tangentially Speaking. You can hear him in conversation with a bank robber, a sex worker, an Italian prince, philosophers, experts in psychedelics. Chris wrote the absolutely fascinating and groundbreaking New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, about the whole history of non-monogamy in our species. He talks about that and so much more, maintaining psychological health in a troubled world. At the end of the day, great conversation has no bounds. So go ahead, follow Tangentially Speaking on the Substack iOS app, Chris Ryan, Dot substack.com or wherever you listen to your podcast and tell Chris Kevin sent you. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Rolling Stones behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Occupational Hazards. Michelle Walson is one of our coaches on our team. I want to be introducing you all more and more to who's who on the team and what they do because I think too many Risk listeners think of the brand as being synonymous with Kevin Allison. Whereas we, behind the scenes, think of Risk as being much more of like a, a family thing and a brand that is, well, bigger than me. So Michelle looked through a lot of recordings and chose this lineup and chose to call this episode Occupational Hazards. I don't know if you saw on our social media this week, we were talking about how we received one of our favorite emails from a risk listener ever. A fellow who said he used to be very narrow-minded, uh, not so tolerant, uh, unsympathetic. <laughs> I think you know what kind of American I'm referring to here. Anyway, he started listening to Risk and really felt that it truly changed his life. Got him to start going to therapy and got him a lot more curious about thinking empathetically and compassionately about what things might be like for people who are different. We were so grateful to get that message. And I'll tell you what, if you are one of those people or you know someone who is one of those people, send us a recording, grab your phone, use the voice memo app, record a little something and send it in to us. We love to hear it. I'm trying to convince that fella to record a little something for us as well. So now we're going to hear three stories in a row 
Justin Willman told a story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles in 2015. Before that, we're going to hear something that was recorded at the Artichoke show in Beacon, New York. If you've never been, September 10th is the next Artichoke show. You can find them at artichokeshow.com. This is Tim Lopez that you're going to hear from a recent one of their shows. And before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded, another Risk Live show in LA by Greg. Grace Helbig. Do not miss her incredible YouTube channel. She has well over 2.5 million subscribers over there. And here she is now with a story we call Precious Straws. is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, then love, true love, pleasure your wife. guys how are you doing oh good mediocre enthusiasm great so when i graduated college i'm originally from the great state of new jersey and that's my horror story thanks <laughs> i graduated uh, and my best friend from college and college roommate and i decided to move to brooklyn so that we could be close to new york city <clears throat> and pursue whatever creative endeavors we wanted to do. At that point, I was performing at the People's Improv Theater in New York. Actually, Kevin Allison was my very first sketch comedy teacher that I ever had in 2006. Yeah, which is very cool, and I can attest, he's a wonderful human being, turns out, yeah. Uh, so I was pursuing comedy at the time, and when I graduated, I ended up with a job in project management at MTV, a nine to five in an office. But the reality was I was responsible for managing one graphic designer who lived a block from the office but would sleep in every morning. So I'd have to call her and wake her up and tell her to come to the office. And then she would sneak out during lunch to take naps with her cat. And I'd have to call her after lunch and tell her to come back to the office. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of upward mobility in that kind of job. So I decided to quit and I started waiting tables so that I had more of an opportunity to audition, face constant rejection, pursue comedy, that whole thing, while my uh, roommate Michelle at the time decided that she wanted to get into editing. And she found an Irish man on Craigslist, which was great. <laughs> he, uh, it turned out that he owned a wedding videography company that he ran out of his studio in Chelsea. He taught himself how to edit and then he taught himself how to bullshit uh, people in New York and New Jersey that had a lot of money into letting him come to their weddings and video it and then make little trailers for him for like $10,000 a trailer. It was really, yeah. And it's super easy to make a wedding video. It's like <laughs> that and then this, and then a slow-mo of a dad and daughter crying. That's it. That's how you do wedding videography. But Michelle ended up working for him, and so on weekends they would go to different really uh, like high-class, super expensive weddings in New York and in northern New Jersey, and occasionally when the wedding was you know, a more grandiose event, they would ask me to come along as the third camera person which meant that I stood next to a camera on a tripod and made sure it was on, which was actually more difficult than the MTV job. So, so I had gone a couple times to a few different weddings and it was great because for Michelle and I, it became this game of what scraps can we get from these really fancy wealthy people. And you know, during weddings, people are usually very happy and very generous and so, um, a lot of times the wedding dads, the fathers of the bride that are responsible for paying for the wedding, become really generous and they will allow you to maybe have a cocktail, maybe have some of the elegant food that they're offering. And so it became this really fun thing for us because those were the nicest meals we had ever had in our entire life <laughs> next to like a bucket of mops in the back of this like northern New Jersey banquet hall. <laughs> 
uh, because at this time we were living in Brooklyn in the shittiest apartment. We had no sink in our bathroom. We would brush our teeth in the kitchen and wash our hands after we used the bathroom in the kitchen. <laughs> and uh, so it was wonderful. And they got an opportunity to shoot this really, really expensive wedding uh, on the Upper West Side. And the reception was gonna happen at the Central Park Boathouse. I got asked to be the third camera person and I was so excited. Michelle and I were literally like, game on. This is gonna be such a great wedding. We're gonna get so much cool shit. And we go, it's a Saturday, and the first thing you do is you go to the bride's apartment, which is actually her parents' apartment, because they're like old money living on this, this beautiful like three-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side. While she gets ready, and you just pretend that you're really interested in her getting ready with a camera, and you take a lot of very artistic panning shots of her putting bobby pins in her hair and lipstick on her lips, it's really high art that happens <laughs> and so we, we do that we go to uh this beautiful church on the upper west side that the ceremony happens at and it's pretty quick and all of the guests are very well dressed you can tell they're like dripping money and uh and they're all really in high spirits it's one of those weddings where you're like maybe this is love sort of <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing about these weddings is that you like get to see through an actual lens that there is no thing as love like there you will watch like a time ticking down of how much longer the groom or the bride thinks that this needs to last which is really fun um, and so after the uh, after the ceremony the reception happens at the Central Park Boathouse so everyone migrates over and we get there and it's so beautifully decorated. There's like votive candles everywhere. There's like beautiful flowers strewn everywhere. And before the bride and groom get there, there's a cocktail hour. And so it's just rows and rows of food and mountains of champagne, which champagne can be mountains, it turns out. <laughs> and we get there and the father of the bride, I'll call him wedding dad for the rest of the story, He's so happy. You can tell that he's like worth billions of dollars. He's got this like stomach that looks like he might have just like killed and eaten a wild boar himself. <laughs> and he is so happy and he's so enamored by Kevin, Michelle's boss, this Irish man. He thinks that he's such a hilarious like cartoon character human being because he has an Irish accent. And he's so enamored by like these two young girl employees that he has that he immediately offers us a glass of champagne. And it's um, Dom Perignon. <laughs> yeah, I knew I couldn't say it, so it had to be really expensive. <laughs> and Michelle and I look at each other and we're like, yes, our dreams are coming true. And so we each down a glass of it, not even wondering how much it actually cost. And everyone's super high spirits. The bride and groom get there. I set up my battle station of a tripod in the very far end of the room with the camera on it. And Michelle and Kevin start filming from other ends of the reception hall. And people are coming in. And what happens for wedding videographers is that there's like a checklist of all the certain moments you're supposed to capture, like the speeches, the cake, uh, the first dance, the parents dance, and then anyone crying. You really have to make sure that you get anyone crying. We start filming people coming in, people saying hello, that sort of thing. Everything's going so well, everyone's so happy. Everyone sits down and the dinner starts. Meanwhile, this time, a cater waiter had been sent over to give Michelle and I another glass of champagne because wedding dad, yeah, woo, wedding dad was woo woo. He was so amped on that day that he wanted everyone in that room, regardless of employment, to be jolly in whatever way possible. And so everyone sits down for dinner. We end up sitting outside with the band to eat dinner, which is a wonderful experience. If you've ever had the chance to eat with a wedding band, highly recommend. <laughs> They're great. At this point, Michelle and I are kind of tipsy. We're trying to hide it from Kevin the best we can because he's kind of this paternal figure in our lives. And we look in through the glass. Wedding dad has a microphone and is already starting his speech. And so we, that's on, I know it was awful. And so we run in and man our battle stations. Good thing wedding dad is kind of toasted and did like 10 minutes of crowd work so we didn't have to worry about <laughs> missing like the sentimental moments. And so I run at this point kind of tipsy and like starting to realize it. And so trying to make more of an effort to hide it to my camera on a tripod and I turn it on and Kevin and Michelle are on like other flanking ends of the room 
and Wedding Dad is going into this really wonderful, like killing the room speech. And all of a sudden, as I'm looking at the camera to make sure that it's still recording, I feel this really hot, like sharp pain sensation on my neck and I like smack it to make it stop because that's how science works. <laughs> and I think, oh, I might have gotten bit by a spider or some sort of like tranquilizer dart because <laughs> I have a constant fear that I'm gonna get kidnapped. <laughs> and, yeah, and I thought, this is a really elaborate way to do it. <laughs> so I start looking around at what it was and then the smell hits me. Like a combo of burnt tires and like a Subway sandwich that's been left in the sun for weeks. And then I instantly recognize it. And it's burnt hair. My hair had caught on fire for a very brief moment of time and I put it out. It was too late though, because as you all probably know, the smell of burnt hair is very specific. <laughs> right, you guys know that? Yeah, because you're all fucking serial killers. <laughs> Got it. And so, because I'm like at a station in the back of the room, I'm next to a table of guests that I call like the obligation table. Is the people that you don't really want at your wedding, but you feel really obligated to invite them. So they all sit at like this outer bank region of kind of like this misfit toy area. And so they're there and I start to see as wedding dad is like still killing the room, their faces as this like, invisible odor starts to accost their noses and everyone's trying not to make a big deal but trying to figure out where it's coming from and why it's happening and then suddenly a cater waiter runs over to me and he's trying not to make a scene so he just whispers what's happening and i being tipsy my immediate response was i think this plant caught on fire <laughs> standing next to this like giant plastic plant. And I was like, but I think it's fine now. Then he was like, okay. And he left. And then finally the odor started to dissipate. Uh, Wedding Dad finished his speech and we were able to capture all the poignant moments. And what happens at the end of a wedding, unless you are supposed to be there because there's something planned, a big surprise or some big to do, you kind of take it upon yourself as when you think you have enough footage to leave. So after all the speeches were done, after the cake was cut, Kevin told Michelle and I that he thought we could handle it and he decided to leave. And Michelle and I being fucking idiots and complete enablers of each other, as soon as Kevin left, we looked at each other, we we're like, game is really on now. And we have become friends with the bartender at this point because at those kind of things, there's like this weird level of like royalty and peasants and all the peasants like bond with each other like immediately. And so we were friends with the bartender. And so he kept giving us glasses of champagne and we were thinking that we were doing our jobs. Michelle had a monopod, which was basically like this with a camera on it. So she was like in the middle of the dance floor holding her monopod with a glass of champagne, <laughs> like doing her job. And we started like having the best night of our lives. Like we had this idea that we were the life of the party. We were talking with everyone. At one point I looked over and Michelle was like in a gaggle of young nephews talking to them. And then I turned away and I looked over again and she was handing them our business cards, but not our wedding videographer business cards. At that point we had also just started our YouTube channel. And so we thought the best way to market it was by giving out business cards. <laughs> and so she's like rummaging, like holding a camera and like giving out business cards to these 13 year old boys that she's talking to. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like sitting with all the aunts, like talking Aunt Judy through her divorce. And like we, like, we were like, we are the best wedding crashers that are getting paid to be here right now. We're this novelty, like wedding videographers that you get drunk with. That's. You know, if anyone's out there looking to invest in a business opportunity, I have an idea. And so by the end of the night, we got all of the footage we thought we did, and uh, we drunkenly put ourselves in a taxi. I'm like 90% sure that we like actually pushed actual wedding guests out of the way to get in a taxi. And I was dating this guy at the time. I like made us go to his apartment, and he, we walk in, and he immediately was like, you smell like a butthole. What happened? <laughs> And he like helped me wash my hair in the sink. And then the next morning we had to go to the office to Kevin to drop off the rest of the footage. And in our mind, 
were wildly hungover, but still like riding this high that we were this amazing life of the party. We got Kevin so many more jobs after this. And we show up to the studio and Kevin is just standing there and he looks like the most disappointed Irish man I had ever seen. And I've seen so many disappointed Irish men. <laughs> and he just says, I would have gotten you straws. And we looked at him so confused. And then he explained that he just got off a very, very angry phone call with Wedding Dad about how unprofessional Kevin's employees were. Apparently, we were accosting wedding guests with dance and conversation. And he was furious. And to top it all off, at the end of the night, apparently, we decided to steal all of the cocktail straws. And we looked at him so confused because we were like, that didn't happen. And then Michelle opened her giant New York hobo bag and like 200 cocktail straws were sitting in it. And I immediately remembered the moment of us looking at each other saying, these are so cute. These are going to make our apartment seem so much less shitty. Take all of them. And so needless to say, Michelle... Uh, continued to work for Kevin, but I was never brought on again as a third, which is great. You know, my career in wedding videography did not pan out the way I thought, but thank God for those business cards because YouTube is doing pretty good for me right now. <laughs> Thanks very much. What does being married mean? Um, you live together and kiss together. <laughs> and cuddle together. Guess what, Nathan? Huh? You'll have to live with me when we marry, because when I'm a parent... Can, can, I, can I visit my mummy? No. Do you take this earthling to be your empress of the hour? Do you promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not! Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So it was around the turn of the century, and I found myself in the middle of a full-blown quarter-life crisis. Um, I had dropped out of school, really as a way to get out ahead of getting officially kicked out, <laughs> moved back home with my parents, and was working more or less full-time as a bartender at a TGI Fridays in the San Fernando Valley. Now, in its heyday, uh, TGI Fridays was something of a trailblazer in the bar and hospitality industry. In fact, they're responsible for many groundbreaking innovations such as Happy Hour and Ladies' Night and the Potato Skins Appetizer. And they're also uh, kind of a pioneer in what is known as flair bartending, which is an aggressively flamboyant style of bartending immortalized in the 1987 film Cocktail, in which Tom Cruise plays a young, 
hotshot bartender who uh, develops and uses uh, his bottle-flipping shenanigans at the TGI Friday's flagship store on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Now, after this, I guess you could call it a peak, um, the popularity and awareness of flair bartending in the zeitgeist uh, went into a precipitous decline. as did the overall cachet of uh, TGI Fridays as a hip dining establishment, um, <laughs> reaching perhaps its nadir in the 1999 film Office Space, in which a very thinly veiled TGI Fridays knockoff is so thoroughly and mercilessly satirized and mocked that by the time I got there, even the word flair had been thoroughly scrubbed from all of the corporate identity of Fridays. And that, of course, included flair bartending, which was kind of pushed into the shadows and went underground and was really on the verge of becoming a lost art. But there were always persistent rumors that there were pockets of flair bartenders that were practicing it in secret, you know, in case it ever came back. Those rumors were validated in 2005 when corporate announced to very mild fanfare the 2005 TGI Fridays Regional Bar Flare Championships. An event in which one person from each of the stores in the Southern California region would be invited to compete against each other in an all-day extravaganza of bartending tomfoolery. I signed up for this immediately. Partly because, you know, I literally had nothing else going on in my life at the time, but also because it seemed like a fun and mostly harmless way to express myself in a semi-theatrical manner. And so I was given three months to prepare for this, and true to form, I didn't do any kind of meaningful preparation until a couple of weeks before the event. And um, my training regimen uh, consisted almost entirely of getting drunk and or high and watching, you know, key scenes from Cocktail at half speed. That notwithstanding, I picked up a couple of tricks. I could do a, a tin flip in which you flip the cocktail shaker off of the bar and catch it behind your head. Um, I could flip a bottle uh, to a pour. And I could do another trick where I would uh, throw the shaker behind me like this and catch it behind my back um, sometimes. Uh, and so, <laughs> despite this impressive repertoire, when the tournament came around, I was feeling a little bit underprepared. But then I told myself, you know what? Like, who's even going to be here, you know? And I was expecting a smattering of, you know, flair bartending nerds and, you know, the usual assortment of suburban bar flies that you tend to see at a TGI Fridays at 3 p.m. on a Monday. <laughs> but I get there, and apparently they've done a, quite a bit of publicity for this event because the place was packed, all right? The restaurant was full. It was five deep at the bar. They were doing two-for-one drink specials and all-you-could-eat Jack Daniels appetizers all night. The place was nuts. And, you know, some co-workers and frenemies of mine had showed up uh, without telling me they were going to do so. And there was a camera crew there and they were videotaping the event um, for a broadcast on closed-circuit television to the entire restaurant and also to every participating store in North America. So there was a, quite a sizable audience for this. And um, at that point, I began to worry. And that worry uh, kind of escalated into outright panic when I, you know, we got started in the, in the event and uh, I got my first look at the competition. <laughs> These were some seriously badass individuals who took flair bartending extremely seriously. <laughs> all right. And they were all coming out, and they had these really elaborately choreographed routines that were set to music and, you know, a, a dazzling array of tricks, right? They were flipping multiple bottles at the same time, and they were doing this trick where you would throw the bottle up and then catch it on their foreheads, um, and they were setting things on fire and stuff like that. And this one uh, young woman, she came out, and she was amazing, and her routine was set to that Rihanna song that was, like, all the rage at the time, and Replay, I believe it was called, and she just came out and just murdered, and she had a routine where she threw three maraschino cherries up in the air and then caught them on a spear that she had wedged between her teeth. One, two, three. It was very obvious very early that I was not going to be competitive in this event. And what was worse is that we drew order randomly and I drew last. So I was the closer for this thing. And I had to watch as these people just got up there and just absolutely shredded the bar while I stood off to the side and withdrew into a personal shame spiral. <laughs> Second to last competitor, guy before me. He gets up there, 
And he looks like the human embodiment of flair bartending. He is buff. He is like tattooed. He's like sleeved up on like both arms. And he has a man bun and he's extremely attractive. <laughs> just a beautiful person. And, um, and like, his name's Esteban. So he's like even a little bit more Latino than me. And, um, and he gets up there and he just destroys, you know. And he's flipping multiple bottles at the same time. His routine is set to the Beastie Boys. You gotta fight for your right to party. (laughs) And you know, he gets to the chorus and it's like, you gotta fight, flip, flip, for your right, catch, catch, to party. (laughs) The place goes, for lack of a better word, apeshit. Um, you know, he closes by jumping up on the rail and he swoops the whipped cream out of the rail and there's three girls that are sitting there at the bar and this is obviously a pre-planned stunt and they all throw their heads back and open their mouths and he whipped creams each of their mouths and then jumps into the bar to thunderous applause. And I'm standing there and it's... I go over to my manager, Scott, and I'm like, yo, I can't do this. Like... I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. I, you you got to get me out of this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go out there. And he's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you have to. Like, you're our representative. Like, I repped you. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to, I can't follow this guy. Like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to make a fool out of myself. And he's like, all right. I'm like, just tell him I'm sick. Like, I'm not doing it. And he's like, fine. And I see this look come over his face. And it's a look I'm very familiar with at that point in my life. <laughs> and it's a look of disappointment. <laughs> and... You know, I've seen that look many times in my life. I've seen it on the faces of my parents when I told them I was dropping out of school. I've seen them on the face of various employers that I had, of jobs that I was either fired from or quitting. I'd seen it on the faces of girlfriends who were dumping me for something that I did or I didn't do. And, you know, I realized that this is my MO, right? I'm really good at starting things. And I'm really good at getting into things with enthusiasm and with gusto. But then when it gets tough and when you have to do the work, I bail. And then maybe, just maybe, that's why I was you know, working at this restaurant and my life was basically going nowhere at that point. And so I was like, you know what? I'll do it. And Scott's like, great, go get him. And so I turn around and I trudge up to the bar. And then he's like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. What song do you want me to play? And I'm like, bro, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And I turn around and I walk out behind the bar. And I look out a sea of faces and all these people looking at me with just these bright-eyed anticipation that they're going to see, like, some, some some new levels of, like, bar trickery, right? And, and they're just, they're waiting for a show. And I just look down at my shoes. I'm waiting for the song to start, and the music starts up, and it's Billy Idol dancing with myself. (laughs) And so I kind of smile, and then I just start laughing, and I start tapping my foot, you know, just kind of giving one of these, getting into the flow. And then I launch into three and a half minutes of what can only be described as an absolute mockery of the art and craft of flair bartending. <laughs> Nothing goes right. I try to do my flip, and I hit myself in the face with a tin. You know? I, I try to flip a bottle. You know, it lands you know, nozzle side down on my wrist. You know? But I, I'm in it now, right? Now I'm kind of all over the place, but I'm, I'm doing it with energy. I'm doing it with gusto. You know, I'm getting bar mixes and alcohol over myself and all over everybody in the front row. <laughs> But I'm getting after it, and I'm smiling, I'm laughing, I'm having a good time, and the crowd's having a good time. And at the end, you know, as a tribute to Esteban, you know, I grab the Bloody Mary mix, and I jump up on the bar, and I try to get the, you know, the girls to kind of engage in this routine, and they look at me like, no, what are you doing? And then, you know, and that's it. And yes, I did get the lowest score ever recorded at one of these events. But I did it. I saw it through, and at least I know that I've got flair. Thank you. We're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's... That's, uh... That's one of my 
My piece is a flare. <laughs> What's a piece of flare? Oh, it's, uh, it's where, we're, you know, like the these suspenders and uh, buttons are all sort of, we're, we're actually required to wear um, 15 pieces of flare. It's really stupid, actually. Do you get to pick them yourself? Yeah, yeah, you do. Although I didn't actually choose these. I, um, I just sort of grabbed, you know, 15 buttons and just, I don't even know what they say. You know, I don't, I don't really care. I don't really like talking about my flair. Okay. Oh, hi guys. How's it going, everybody? All right. You're good. Everybody else good? We're good. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a story about the moment I discovered that it doesn't work when you try to be somebody you're not. Uh, did he tell you I was a magician? I'm a magician. <laughs> People are always like, really? Because I don't look like a magician. I look like, a, I look like a, a Jewish Jonas brother or something. But, <laughs> but, but I'm a, like a legit magician. And people always, they hear you're a magician, like, how'd you become a magician? When I was 12 years old, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, I was always trying to figure out a way, like, to be the center of attention, but I didn't, like, have a, a talent or a skill, so I would make stupid stuff up. So one day after school, I was, uh, I had this idea, because I loved Evil Knievel, I loved daredevilly things, so I, I was riding my bike while wearing rollerblades, okay? So I was, <laughs> can you picture it? Have you ever rollerbladed? So imagine like wearing rollerblades, but being on a bike. So you're, and so it's difficult because you're, the, the, the wheels slide on the pedals. It's not meant to be done. So, which is why I was like, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, bike blading is what I called it. Bike blading. <laughs> so I was with some friends of mine and these girls, and I was like, I'm, I think they're digging this. And, because uh, they were still there. We've been out for an hour and we're going around the neighborhood. And uh, we're at the top of a hill, and we go down this hill, and I'm going really fast. And the, the fact that the wheels don't match up with the pedals became a problem for me. And the, the rollerblade brake got caught in the gears of the bike, and the whole bike just stopped, and I kept going because of science, I guess, or physics. <laughs> and uh, so I kept going now without a bike. I'm just flying through the air. And I catch myself with my arms, because that's what your instinct tells you to do. But I broke both arms at the same time which is pretty cool. Because uh, that's, not, that's not easy to do. So I had, I had, the left one was really bad. There was a bone sticking out. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it was really, it's funny now. I was 12 at the time, and these girls had to take me to the hospital. I was in cast for six months. Like, they had to have the left arm broken and then rebroken and pins and all this whole thing. I, I had this orthopedic surgeon. It was weird, because I'm right-handed, but I got my left cast off first, so for like the last month, I had to learn how to do everything with my left hand, how to type and uh, write and every, everything that a 12-year-old does. So I'm, and then I get the other cast off, and my, my arms are very weak. And my doctor randomly recommends uh, magic. He like prescribes sleight of hand to get my dexterity back as an alternative to physical therapy which now sounds really great, and you're like, oh, that sounds great, because now you, you already know how it ended, that I became a magician. But at the time, I can't believe we didn't sue him for suggesting I learn magic. <laughs> like, he, this is a doctor who prescribes hobbies for real medical ailments. <laughs> medical ailments. Uh, herpes? Hit, try basket weaving. I don't know what else. <laughs> I was the success story. <clears throat> And uh, so he prescribed me magic, and I was like, okay, let me get into magic. And I loved magic. So there was one magic shop in St. Louis. It was a half magic shop, half adult bookstore, adult novelty store. <laughs> like, if you had to buy a fake dick, this is where you'd go, okay? <laughs> or like a penis helmet for a, you know, bachelorette party or anything. Pa helmet? Penis helmet? I don't know. Penis hats? Penis tiaras. That's what they are. So, so I would take magic lessons there once a week, and it was like I'd found my calling. It was great. The awkward part is because I was a teenager, and this was a, also an adult bookstore, you had to have a parent or guardian with you. So I had to take my mom with me every week, and she'd sit off in the corner, like in the dildo section, while I'm learning magic. So, 
I learned, you know, what palming was, and she learned what a chin strap is. And um, we both learned things. And I learned more about the world of magic. They took me to Vegas, which is where all great magicians are. And I, met, I, I saw Lance Burton and met Lance Burton. Anybody know who Lance Burton is? Okay. So he was like the guy. Lance Burton, you know, flawless tuxedo, elegant, kind of like Fred Astaire of magic. And he would do this thing where he'd open his act and classical music would play and he'd make doves appear. Like just dove, yo, dove. Just silks, doves. Here's a candle, doves. Cigarette, dove. Like... <laughs> He's not even saying a word. It's like four minutes long and like 50 tricks happen and it's incredible. And I, it blew my mind. I was like, I want to be Lance Burton. Okay, he was just flawless. Even when he would like apparently mess something up, like he would maybe drop a card. Oops. He would just like hit his foot to the ground, kick it up to his hand and the card would reappear and he'd be like, yeah. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. Like with magic, even if you make a mistake, you can pretend like it's not a mistake because it's magic, okay? So Lance Burton became my, my idol. I wanted to be him, so much so that for my 15th birthday, my parents got me a dove. Aww. Like a real live white dove. She was my first pet ever. I never have had a pet before that. She was very beautiful, you know, symbol of peace. Ooh, dove. They do that a lot. And, uh, and I named her Alice, because my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, her name was Alice, and it made her happy that I named my dove after her. Uh, and she was my, my high school sweet. I lost my virginity to her, different story. Then we were together for four years, and then she cheated on me with Nelly, the rapper. So it's a long story, but that's a different story. I'm gonna get back to later. Maybe I buried the lead. But uh, anyway, so I would do these shows with this dove. I had a tuxedo. I was 15, I had a tuxedo. That's not normal. I thought it was normal, okay? I, ha I made up business cards with like a magic stage name on it. My magic stage name then, because my name is Justin, my mom and I thought up the name Just Incredible. So I was... <laughs> Get it? Yes. But I mean, right now you hear me say that, you're like, oh my God. But when I'm adorable and 15, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> just Incredible. I come out with a briefcase, says, hey, I'm Just Incredible. That's my Just In Case. Wow, maybe I should still do that act because it's, it's killing. <laughs> so business cards and I was like, I was, I was set up. So I would, uh, the whole goal would be to get booked at kids' birthday parties because when you're 15, like that's the only people that are gonna hire you. No, you know, a corporation's not gonna hire you to entertain their businessmen, that'd be weird. Um, <laughs> so, the goal is to do kids' shows, and I started booking a lot of them, because Just Incredible is good branding, okay? Magician for all occasions has Dove. I think that's all, that's, where do I sign up? So I started doing shows for kids' birthday parties, and I love it because I'm just a little older than them, and they like, they're like, oh, wow, I can be a magician, because he's, you know, he's just a little older than us. And, uh, and performing for kids is so lovely, because kids don't know that there's tricks. Like, they just think it's real and they're awesome and happy about it. Like I used to make the dove appear. They didn't care where it came from because for them, it's just, that's how magic works. But if I did that today for a bunch of adults, made a dove appear, you'd be like, oh, it's up his sleeve. There's a trap door. How was the dove treated? You know? <laughs> it's a different time. It was probably not treated well looking back, but, but I love my dove. Uh, but wonder, like kids are full of wonder. So performing for kids was just the best. And I don't use doves anymore. I don't use any animals anymore because looking back, I realized like it's a crummy life for that animal. Like she's meant to be free. She's a beautiful animal. And her life basically, without spoiling how tricks work, consisted of like, she's in her cage and then she's in a dark pocket. And now she's all of a sudden at a birthday party in front of 20 kids. And then she's back in a cage and then a dark pocket and then a birthday party. Happy birthday. Cage, dark pocket, bat mitzvah occasionally. Mazel tov, I would do those. Cage, dark pocket, Alice the human's house. Hey, what's up? Uh, let's play some deli. Uh, foreshadow, that would have been bad. Um, but it wasn't just like me knowing that, uh, that using an animal for entertainment purposes is, is not morally right. I had an incident that woke me up, okay? I was booked to do a birthday for Xander's sixth, okay? Xander was adorable, okay? Big, just incredible fan, this kid. He'd seen me before. He knew all the tricks. He was so stoked. Like, I was his 
Beatles or something like. So you'd, you'd see the Beatles, you'd request a song, he'd be like, the dove, or, you know, do the, the hat trick or whatever. Like, he was a fan, and uh, I was so thrilled, and all of his friends were super stoked. So many of his friends came to the party because they heard that Justin Crowbell was going to be there, but they couldn't fit everybody inside. They had to do it outside. So we're in the backyard, and it's a beautiful day, and it was just flawless. And I'm sitting up under a tree, I'm wearing a tuxedo, and... Uh, and I start the show, and I make the dove appear, and I just saw that look on their faces. They were just like, wow. I was like, I got him. And then this little gust of wind blew along, and the dove kind of f- flapped, and it flew up into a tree, okay? Now, this had never happened before, because I'd never done the dove trick outside, which means that at this point, I didn't even know that she could fly, like, because <laughs> cage, dark pocket, birthday. And apparently, she can fly. She's in a tree, and she looks thrilled. Um... <laughs> But in my head, I was like, all right, be like Lance Burton here, because Lance Burton would make it look like it's part of the show. So I thought fast, bird flew into the tree, and I was just like, uh, behold. And um, <laughs> just gesturing up to the tree, I'll be back for you later, okay? And I, I go on with the show as if nothing happened, and then I get to the end of the show. She still hadn't come back yet. So my plan in my head was, I'm just going to hang out at the party when all this kids, all Xander's friends leave. I'll climb the tree, because it's not very you know, glamorous, and I'll get the dove back. And I'm good, because I want to get her back, obviously, because I love her. She's my friend. It cost 40 bucks. And uh, I was only getting paid 30, I think, for this party. But I didn't get a chance to do that, because they're, you know, they're doing pizza and the pinata. And then birthday cake is always like the end. And as they're getting the birthday cake ready, I see this um, hawk, like, circling in the distance. And everything starts to move in really slow motion because I'm just kind of calculating. I was like, he's really far away. We're cool. Maybe it's not a hawk. Maybe it's a plane going down or something. Like, I'm, I keep eyeballing it while trying to act, hey, happy. And they, they're, getting, they're lighting the candles, and they start singing happy birthday. 30 kids around Xander, the, the best day of his life. He's just smiling so huge. And... This hawk was moving quick, and as they're reaching the peak of the song, like, happy birthday to you, this hawk just swoops in and snatches Alice and its talons so gracefully, and just off they went. And it happened, like, within two seconds. There's even, like, a cartoon puff of feathers. Um, Like, there's white feathers raining down, and everybody saw it, and... Like, Xander wasn't smiling anymore. Uh, his parents were pissed. Like, everybody, the kids, like, the young kids start crying because it was kind of gory. It was awful. It was really bad. But it happened quick. It was magical. Um, <laughs> but, I, I mean, like, kids, like, the party's kind of, I've, I've tainted, I've, 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 blood is in the water here, okay? And everyone looks at me to see what I'm going to do. And I was just like, uh-huh. Ta-da! <laughs> Because what else do you say? Um, so I learned a lot of lessons that day. Xander learned the lesson of his own uh, mortality, which is great. <laughs> I learned that hawks can be cold. But I learned that, that it's very important. I learned the lesson of not trying to be somebody you're not. Because, uh, you know, I tried to be a daredevil rollerblader, and I'm not. I tried to be Lance Burton, but I'm not, okay? I tried to be just incredible but I'm not. And that dove, that dove tried to be free. But it wasn't in the cards. And that's the end of my story. That's really sad. You're waiting for a dove, but there's no dove.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Madness behind me now. And we just heard from Justin Willman. Before that, Tim Lopez. And we want to remind you, there is so much more bonus content to be found at patreon.com slash risk. We very much need the support of our listeners to keep the show running. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, don't forget that I do one-on-one training. I help people with their podcasts or preparing stories for other shows like The Moth or even Risk or preparing stories to tell in job interviews or business presentations or wedding toasts, whatever it might be, you can find me at kevinallison.com. And you can find anything else you want to know about risk at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Helmet? I don't know. Penis hats? Penis tiaras. That's what they are. Dom Perignon. <laughs>